With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to a special edition of 4020, uh, not live, uh, joined by Simon Johnson uh, this morning to talk all things rugby league. And the first question I've got for you, Simon, because I think this is an important one. What exactly is your role in the RFL and, and how much power do you have? Because I think this will uh, decide on, on how much people think you can and can't do in that role. Well, hello, uh, guys. It's it's great to be uh, with you and thank you for having me. Uh, so I'm the independent non-executive chair What does that mean? I chair the board meetings. I chair the council. Uh, I am the uh, the the uh, senior uh, non-executive person. What non-executive means is I don't work in the business every day. I'm effectively meant to be there about four days a month. Of course, it's much more than that. Um, The uh, chief executive reports in uh, to me as the chair and I'm the if you like the ambassador um, for the game. Um, and, and I represent the sport on um, the International Rugby League board, on the Super League, to government, uh, and occasionally, but just occasionally, come and talk to people like you. How do you think the uh, the state of rugby league is then at the moment? Obviously, we're coming off the back of the, the second season involving COVID. The World Cup's just been postponed for a year, although we have announced internationals for this autumn. How, how do you see the health of rugby league as a sport in the UK at the moment? Well, I'm a glass half full type person, and that will be uh, very evident um, from from you know what we discuss. Um, so I recognise that this has been a hugely challenging time, but we're having this conversation as we come to the business end of the season. And you know, I love what we've got on the pitch. We're coming into playoffs and heading towards the grand final, coming to the end of the season. Um, and we can look forward to great excitement at all levels. You know, we've got the uh, wheelchair grand final coming up this weekend. Um, we're heading into the playoffs at, at all levels, including at the women's level. So there's always something to get excited about. But there is no question there are significant challenges that have affected the sport. I think we have weathered the lockdown pretty well. We've come through it pretty robustly. Uh, we've had all clubs have survived, and that wasn't certain to be the outcome at the start of all of this. But we moved to a future where the amount of revenue flowing into the game is less, and we have to deal with that. Um, you know, so we recognise what the challenges are, but I also recognise that there are opportunities as well. If we can realign the rugby league, the RFL and the Super League, then that gives us a really exciting way to move forward. If we can bring in investment and strategic partners, it opens up new vistas for us. Uh, We've got a a strategy to 2030 that we're developing and consulting on. And if we can deliver that, that offers 
uh, exciting opportunities for growth. Next season, of course, we've got the Challenge Cup final in uh, the Spurs Stadium for the first time ever. And of course, although we're all disappointed that the World Cup uh, won't be happening in a few weeks' time, in a month's time, as it would have been, we've now got a whole year to look forward to it in 2022. So I'm always an optimistic person. I always like to look at uh, forward at, at what could be achieved. Uh, and that's the way that, that I see things at the moment. I think we could probably do with more optimism in the DNA of the sport. I'm, I'm convinced that because we were born out of prejudice, it's probably one of the things that we don't do well enough. And you'll appreciate at the moment, there's a load of meaty topics to discuss. And it's great that maybe we can get into the depth of some of them rather than superficially gloss over them. But I wanted to start with communication, if that's all right, because clearly, um, you know, you, you, you're on here and we're, we're grateful for your time. But are we visible enough as a sport? Do, do we need a spokesperson? It's something that certainly on our programme we've spoken about for a lot. Um, what, what do you think the impression is of rugby league outside of those of us that are involved in rugby league? Well, I'll break that down, Phil, in, into uh, a couple of areas, if, if you don't mind. I think in the broader media, I don't think that rugby league is high enough profile. It's been something that I've wanted to address for some time. I don't think we get the attention that I believe our great sport deserves from the broader media. Uh, what's interesting is that we probably got more coverage over my comments about uh, the Australians and Kiwis not coming to the Rugby League World Cup than I think we did for, for anything else in the previous six months. So there's no question now that the general media and the general public know that there's a Rugby League World Cup coming up. Um, I think within the Rugby League um, community, look, I, I think our, our, our fan base, our, our commentariat is generally quite cynical. Um, I'm, as I say, I'm an optimistic person. I don't expect that to rub off everywhere, but but I always like to be front foot and positive where, where I can. And I do accept the criticism that perhaps we have not been as a as a governing body with our colleagues at Super League and elsewhere as visible as perhaps the the fan base would like us to be. Now, you can't be visible all the time. No sport does that. You know, I challenge our fan base to have a look at how often, you know, the FA or the LTA or the RFU gets out and about and talks. Um, but I have sensed, and this is perhaps one of the reasons why I've come on here now, uh, Phil, that people have felt that we've been hiding our light under a bushel a bit. They've liked, I think people have wanted the opportunity to discuss some of the issues that are concerning them a bit more broadly. Um, now, you can't always do that. Lots of the discussions you have need to be conducted a little bit behind closed doors, a little bit uh, privately in order to make progress. But I felt that um, now has been the time where it might be a good idea to come out and open yourself up and open a debate with people who are at least thoughtful about the game. I've said to you before, Phil, we make decisions on behalf of the game. We accept that there will be times when people disagree with the decision we make, that they could take the same set of facts and make exactly the opposite decision. So as long as we're able to articulate why we've made the decisions, it allows, it allows I hope, for constructive debate. I think the other side of communication is amongst yourselves. Um, and obviously, one of the things that Ken Davy has stressed in the, the media conferences he's done that Ralph talked about last week was unity. And yet I think we're seeing across the game a sense that there is a dislocation, that some of the uh, coaches, owners of maybe League One size championship teams feel that they're not being told enough about what the future may look like. They're, they're on social media at the, at the elite level. We've got sort of Derek Beaumont, if you like, breaking ranks, saying he's going to challenge relegation legally. We've got Adam Pearson saying that we'd like private equity, but we don't think our, our game is worth anything. Um, do you think that, that, again, communication amongst yourselves and the various disparate parts of the organisation is, is, is good enough? I think we're uh, we're a very um, opinionated sport, and and we've got some characters, good characters, who like to talk and like to create news, and 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 that you're never going to stop that, never. There's a couple of things we are aligned on. Ken Davy is chair of the Super League, and me as chair of RFL are committed 
to realigning Super League and RFL and to find a way for us to align our thinking and align our commercial interests so that we can make joint decisions in the best interests of the game. That's a positive position. And I hope that the discussions flowing away from that will lead to um, a, a, a positive conclusion. I do share and I understand the frustration of owners and coaches below the Super League at the distributions and uh, the finances and how things are going to run for next season. We've been trying to resolve a number of big issues over the last few months. I think we're, we finally are getting to the position where we will be able to share that. And I hope that we can improve the situation and that people can understand uh, what, what's coming for them in, in 22. Certainly when I've been around matches, those are the points that have been made to me. So I get it. I understand it. And we're trying hard as a board, as an executive team, to be able to give people the clarity that they will need for 2022 and beyond. Because what we're trying to deal with here is a drastically changed financial situation. There is going to be significantly less money in 2022 and 2023 in the game than there was in 2020 and 2021. And we have to be able to adapt to that. It's taking us a little bit longer than we hoped it would, but we'll get there. You mentioned taking unpopular decisions and a very recent example of that was the Elite Academy. I almost want to call it a fiasco now because plans were made, announced. Uh, there was a very quick uh, reaction negatively from those who weren't uh, involved in the elite and then everything has uh, gone back to pretty much where it was do we need to stand by those unpopular decisions sometimes and not roll back at the uh, the site of public pressure well let me discuss that one specifically because i knew you were going to raise that um you know the the decision about how to deal with the academies um had been um ongoing for about a year before it came to the board. There was an independent committee uh, that was examining all of these issues and they brought a recommendation to the board of the RFL. Now, we as a board and I as a chair frequently reflect on whether we are effective or not. We questioned the uh, panel and the recommendations that they made, but in the end we approved it. I look back on that now with the benefit of hindsight and wonder whether I and my colleagues asked all the right questions. Because when we approved their recommendation, which was what we did, this was a panel that had been working for a long time. You're right, the reaction was negative and it was clear that we did not um, properly take into account the factors that other people had picked up. Now, politicians will tell you that if something is wrong and you feel you can do something about it, you've got to do something about it. And we reflected on it. We saw what was happening. We had another look back at the recommendations. Ralph and I uh, called for the potential for a different solution. And in the end, we made a change and we changed direction. I don't think we should be criticised for that. I'm not asking for praise, but politicians do it all the time. And what's interesting is that a great friend of the game, the Speaker of the House of Commons, so Lindsay Hoyle, I saw at a match two days after we did that. He's a politician. He took me to one side and he said, look, you did the right thing in the end. The decision was wrong, but you saw what had happened and you took it. And that that really is, um, you know, the, the story of how that all came about. Um, so, you know, there were people saying, well, this is disgraceful and X should resign and all, all of those things. But this is one where yeah, the decision that was taken in the end was not the right one, but we got there um, eventually. And I think if you recognise that there's a better way to do it, then do it quickly. I, th I think we're sort of touching on the issues of governance here and there's a there's a whole well to, to dip into. But just going back to the word realignment, I, I'm not sure looking back through all the quotes that we've seen that every, anybody's actually defined what that is. Is it going back to what it was before Super League broke away and making them your commercial arm, which is effectively how the RFL operated anyway in the past? Um, or is it something deeper than that? Because I think there's a feel as well, and, and you outlined what the sporting landscape looks like at the moment, that there has to be change. Um, so are we going back to something we've had before, or can you highlight where you're looking that will be a point of difference? We're not going to go back exactly to where we were. What we're 
talking about is aligning the commercial interests and the commercial assets of Super League and the RFL into one body that can drive that forward together so that all decisions on commercial exploitation and uh, and so on can be taken by a body that is uh, jointly uh, operated by RFL and SLE. So it's not quite the same model, but it, it, it gives us the opportunity to align the commercial interests together so that everything can be sold collectively for the benefit of the whole of the game. And I'll, I'll give you one example of where, had we been aligned, the situation would have been different. And that's the mid-season international that we've just had. Because effectively Super League and RFL are two separate bodies, the fixture calendars for both bodies went off um, without being properly aligned. Um, so you had a situation where the mid-season international was fixed by agreement, but then Super League, their board, took the decision that there would also be Super League fixtures the same weekend. Now, I am convinced that have we moved into an aligned structure, as we were putting the fixture schedule together, people would have realised that the commercial opportunity, as well as the sporting opportunity, from having a mid-season international with no other matches around it, would have... Uh, being the dominant factor in that. And you would not have had Super League matches scheduled for the same weekend. So that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to get to a situation where we can align everybody's interests and where the commercial growth of the sport is something that is shared right the way across the game. So although that looks to be a small parochial issue, it's, in my view, the best example of why the type of realignment we're talking about will help to make the types of improvements that I think people like you and others have been quite frustrated about over the last two to three years. So I'm guessing that the key word in that is joint, that in, in the past it was all under the auspices of the RFL. The Super League then got the ability to negotiate their own products and now you want to bring it back as, as a joint committee. So if we move on to the strategic review group, um, again, the initial criticism, which, which possibly is fair, I think, is that um, with the greatest respect to the people who are on it, um, there isn't a point of difference in that either. It's what might be termed the usual suspects, highly qualified, um, very respected people within the game, but no real outside influence. So is it just moving sides in a civil war or can we expect them to recommend something that we you know, might, might even be harm their own particular individual club interests? You've made a very uh, fair observation there. And I think that what we've done is we've, we've I think, created an, a misleading uh, impression about what this group is doing. It's actually quite a, an important but, but, re, but restricted role that it has. It's a group that's considering between the RFL and SLE how best to conduct discussions and move forward with some of the uh, external strategic partners stroke investors that are interested uh, in, in looking at the game. Now, we've got three or four um, quite significant financial and sporting um, commercial strategic partners who have approached either us at the RFL or um, the uh, colleagues at the SLE because they want to become involved in the game. So the primary role of this group will be to consider how best, if at all, to move forward with any of those groups. The wider strategy for the sport is something that the RFL board has been talking about for some considerable time. We're now consulting on that um, and we're consulting widely. We'll be consulting um, with, with uh, clubs and owners throughout the game. That's already started and hopefully beyond that. We're trying to put together our vision for the sport in 2030. And, and we are an independent board and we can get onto that in a moment because I know there's been some discussion about that. But we're an independent board. And we're working to try and develop, as I say, that long-term strategy focused on what we need to have achieved by uh, 2030. So if I can pick one thing out of that, we want to have 150,000 rugby league participants by 2030. Now, if we're going to do that, what are the decisions we have to take now, today, in order to set ourselves on that road? You know, we want to bring another 15 million pounds of investment into community facilities building on the back of the Rugby League World Cup. 
again, what are the decisions and the partnerships we need to enter into now to enable that to happen? So the long term vision for the game as a whole is something that the rugby league board is spearheading. The specific opportunity to bring partnership and investment into the game for specific growth that's what's being dealt with by this group that is a joint group between the RFL and the Super League. So in terms of decision making they they are presumably an advisory group they make recommendations they will make them to the rugby league board does the rugby league board then have to put them to the super league board will the super league board then let's not get if that's all right phil let's not get everybody bogged down in minutiae if i can just try and explain how the situation is prior to the breakaway the super league was subservient constitutionally to the rfl certainly commercially the the breakaway created a situation where commercially the super league took the lead position What we are now trying to create is a situation where those commercial situations are jointly exploited by the RFL and the SLE. So for now, any decision on a partnership has to be approved by both the SLE board and the RFL board. It's a duplication of effort. It's quite frustrating, but it's people like me who need, you know, Ken Davey and others have to make that happen. What we're aiming to get to is a structure where decisions like that can be much simpler where commercial decisions will be taken by a joint board uh, and where the RFL uh, will will lead on the remaining um, items that need to be dealt with by a sports governing body. So we're in a, 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 you know, a bit of a, a bit of a complex governance scenario at the moment. That's my problem. Um, it's shouldn't be anybody else's. I don't want anybody, I, you know, I know rugby community loves to dive into the minutiae of governance in a way that I've never seen in any other sport. But what we're trying to do is to get the governance uh, decision making aligned so that we can more easily make the right decisions for the long term interests of the game. So in terms of a specific, just picking one at random, um, the RFL prioritise international rugby league. So you want a mid-season test, you want um, proper build up into the World Cup, a regular cycle and calendar of international events, you feel that part of what you can offer to any kind of strategic partner is the international element of the game. It's a relatively low hanging fruit. It's a great product, but we don't promote it enough. Um, But then you come up against Super League who want to have 150 fixtures in the year. Who makes the final decision on resolving that under this new structure? So I think what people are interested in is not the minutiae mechanics of um, who sits where, but actually who gets to make the final decision. Yeah, look, it's quite a good example uh, of something that I think will be significantly improved. I, I actually think it's okay that now anyway, because I think there's a much better understanding between the RFL board and the SLE board. And so... I agree with you. International Rugby League is significantly underexploited. It's a tremendous growth opportunity, not just for us in England, but in Australia, New Zealand, in the South, you know, in the um, uh, the, the South Pacific, and in, with, amongst the other nations in Europe. It, it, it is something that the whole game really needs to deal with. There's a few different partners need to make this to happen. The first is the IRL, International Rugby League Board. They need to agree an international calendar. There's good progress being made on that. That's what we're aiming to get to, a good, protected, sufficiently uh, long uh, calendar at the end of the season that can be used to create meaningful and exciting international competition. There is discussion going on about creating a mid-season window as well. I have to say that's not popular really anywhere. The Australians really don't like it. We're hopeful that we've got the opportunity for a mid-season international negotiated with the Super League here in England uh, for 2022. Whether that type of thing carries on really depends on international partners. So to get back to your specific question, once we've got our realigned joint venture commercially, they will recognise that the England team and International Rugby League is an exploitable commercial asset with real growth opportunity. And therefore, we will collectively be incentivized to grow that commercial opportunity. So I'm convinced 
that even though it's not that difficult now, because the bigger issue is creating the international calendar, it will be something that is perfectly aligned and achievable with the new structure that we're trying to create. You Does that make sense? sense? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I think it's important to outline for everybody who says, you know, are we going to get this conflict between Super League wanting to start in January to get their minimum 25 fixtures in and the RFL saying now we've got some properties that we're we're losing out on exploiting the commercial value of. And you've explained now that it is going to be more of a joint venture. And I think that is quite, quite important. And I can give you a little bit of comfort as well about how it's working until we're a joint venture, because with really no uh, difficulty at all. The fixture for Super League, fixture schedule for Super League has been set. And because of the earlier start of the World Cup, the grand final is going to be earlier in order to accommodate that. The start of the season is still going to be where you would want it in order not to burn out the players. Now, we haven't needed to create a joint structure to make all that happen. We just needed to have a good constructive relationship um, and that we've got there. So I think things are better now. And I think under the new arrangement that we're trying to put in place, there's the opportunity for it to be even better. Sorry, Richard. We, we That's OK. Uh, I'm used to it on this programme because uh, <laughs> Phil has better questions. We, we uh, You mentioned a report and, and, and planning for 2030. I mean, Phil will mention that we've had plenty of reports in the past. So fingers crossed this one, everything goes to plan and is implemented and everything goes ahead. Uh, but on a more serious point, um, do we have a structure for the game on the field that we will stick to by 2030 and not change every two years as we appear to do at the moment? And Well, we, we appear to be going towards uh, a, a top league of 20 with two divisions of 10. How you can have a, a second division called Super, I'm not sure, but that's just semantics. But can we be confident we can find a structure we can stick to and actually uh, not move away from this time? Well, look, it, uh, it, fair point. We've, since I've been on the board, this is, I think, the third structure we've been looking at. Um, why are we having these conversations in the first place? Well, there is no question, as I said at the start, that there is less money coming into the game during the next cycle than there has been during the, the past cycle. And we have to be able to make that money go further if we can, make less money go as far as we can get it to create the best possible product and to give us the best opportunity to attract investment. And when we go back to the market, the commercial and the broadcast market in a couple of years time, to give us the best opportunity to build that revenue back up again. And I don't want anybody listening to or watching this to underestimate the degree of the financial challenge that we, we have at the moment. So the discussion about new structure comes from that. How can we create something that gives us the best opportunity to grow commercially in a couple of years? So although nothing has been agreed yet, the discussion about potentially moving to two divisions of 10, which I'm involved in, um, focuses on a number of things. Firstly, it gives us the opportunity to create space in the calendar to create new uh, opportunities for rugby league product. We could, for example, put in an expanded nines competition. There's the opportunity to create perhaps a charity shield, to do a better world club championship, to create our version of origin. If you've, if you've got space in the calendar, then, then you, can, uh, you can explore those sorts of things. The other thing that we're trying to do is to see if we can make the financial distribution between the levels of the game a little bit better. At the moment, there is a, a bit of a cliff edge between the Super League and the division below it, the championship. So can we, in creating this structure, reduce that cliff edge, retain what I believe is, is part of the magic of rugby league, promotion and relegation, but create a, a world in which it is not such a financial calamity if you are relegated. And so as part of the discussions that we're having, we are looking at the financial distribution models. Um, so that's really the thinking behind having these discussions. I don't know how they're going to how they're going to work. 
I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but that's why we're thinking about it. Now, of course, that raises the question, what happens below the top two divisions? Um, and again, trying to um, reduce that cliff edge is going to be quite challenging. The, the, the reason that, that we're, we're trying to put, keep the money in the top as far as possible is because I said this the other day on the, um, the, the, the BBC podcast that I did. If you look at our sport, we're a pyramid, Super League at the top and then the championship, then League One, then the community game. And it's perfectly understandable that the top of the pyramid is only as strong as are the foundations at the base. So you need to make sure that the foundations of our pyramid are as strong as possible. But when you look at the way that the commercial revenue is distributed, you flip over the, the, the pyramid and the bulk of the money comes in at the top. The, the driver for the money into the sport comes from the England team, the Challenge Cup and the, the top teams within the Super League. And in fact, it's the Super League that is the big driver of the commercial revenue. So you need to maximise that revenue coming in at the top in order to be able to distribute it to flow down to the bottom. Now, what we've been able to do, and sorry, I know this is a long answer and I'm, I'm very conscious about that. So come back to me if, if you want. What we've been trying to do is to introduce um, distributions of finances throughout the game based on how the clubs can grow the game, what we call our return on investment. And we've got this in operation in the championship and the and league one now, where the money is distributed on a varying factor, depending on how clubs are performing against a certain number of metrics. The better you're able to grow the game, the more you'll be able uh, to receive it. We, we are unique in that respect, in that we don't distribute our money just flat, but we actually tailor it to ability to grow the game. I'm on record as saying I want that model spread throughout the whole of the game so that the money that is coming centrally can be used in order to help to grow the game and to help us to meet our long-term objectives. I was going to ask if I was a League One club or a club outside the uh, the top 20 what my uh, future would be and I guess we, we don't know what that future would be but how how hard is it to bring in revenue below Super League? As you say, Super League, obviously, with the TV contract, brings in the vast majority of money into the sport. How difficult is it to further monetize the Championship League One 1895 Cup or whatever that isn't Super League at the moment? Women's Super League, wheelchair Super League, all those various components of the sport which aren't being revenue revenized at the moment? Well, I think we've done quite well. I mean, the Women's Super League has been supported uh, by Betfred, uh, same with the Challenge Cup. We were able to bring in national lottery finance to help us with the uh, mid-season internationals. The 1895 Cup has had AB Sundex has supported it. Uh, but clearly, the, the, the bigger sums of money are going to come into the Super League. That's the nature at every level of every sport. The top level always brings in the most money. We're doing as much as we can to try and bring money into the uh, uh, the lower parts of the game. Um, we, we I hope that shortly we'll be announcing uh, a broadcasting deal for the championship to sit alongside our league. Um, and I, I've heard a lot of talk, and I, I, I do see this. I've, I've heard talk around, and I see a lot of it on social media, that we're casting the clubs in League One adrift. Um, we're not doing anything of the sort. What we're trying to do is to bring, distribute the finances around the game in a fair, equitable way that, that, that enables the growth of the game. So there will be less money around um, below the Super League and below the top two divisions if we move to any form of new structure. And therefore, it's going to be up to those clubs to to run their clubs based on a lower amount of central funding. And I know those clubs pretty well. Some For some of them, central funding is the bulk of their revenue. But for other clubs, central funding is only a small part of their revenue. They're able to bring in revenue from other areas. They're able to run their costs in such a way that, that they're not so reliant on central revenue. So I'm hopeful, I mean, we're consulting on this at the moment, that the League One, as we know it, as we understand it, will continue to remain sustainable 
supporting a, a, a growing championship and a super league that's able to exploit its commercial assets jointly with the RFL. I think if we can get to that world, that gives us the opportunity to get more revenue into the game when we go back into the market in a couple of years. It's a complex, tough, sort of three-dimensional chess game that we're playing at the moment with this to try and get the game sustainable for the next couple of years, but to create that growth narrative that allows us to bring more revenue into the game, either from investment or from commercial or both. I mean, I'm glad you've said it's complex because one of the reasons we wanted you on here and you've you know, very kindly agreed to spend a, a significant amount of time on it is that we can tell everybody how complex these issues are and it isn't you sit down at your desk, you know, sign your name and there's a new edict. Um, I want to come back to return on investment if I can in a minute, but um, I, I just have a nagging question at the back of my mind um, and it's all to do with the less money coming into the game and it may be an extremely simplistic way of looking at it but we've been told by super league that they're very very happy with the sky viewing figures that they're up 10 percent this year and even if you don't include the years where we couldn't have fans in the ground and we all had to watch on television anyway that over the last five years it's gone up approximately 25 percent but sky's offer was 40 percent down so what do you think a broadcaster wants from the sport if it's getting the viewing figures that it needs to get the correct commercial realisation to take away some of these complex issues? As you know, Phil, I used to work in broadcasting. That's why I asked you. And I, you know, it, it's complicated. From a seller's perspective, you want there to be competition in the market. That's, that's what drives the price um, as, as high as you can. But it's incumbent upon the sport to produce something that broadcasters want to fight over. Um, and that means for me, it means that what we have to ensure is that the product on the field is as exciting as possible. Um, so you want to have great action. You want the outcome of each game to be in doubt. You want to have great athletes. You want to be playing in great stadiums. You want the facilities in those stadiums to be good. You want the stadiums to be full. For the stadiums to be full, you've got to be able to have an inclusive and welcoming atmosphere. You've got to have affordable prices. You've got to have facilities that people want to come to. You've got to be playing the matches at times where people want to go and see them. Um, there are a whole range of factors that are necessary. You know, a nighttime game, the, the, the stadium has to be lit properly. It has to look good on the television. Fans there need to be creating an atmosphere. So there's a whole range of things that we as a sport need to be able to do to make it as exciting as possible. You need to be able to say to the viewers, you'll switch on to a match and there'll always be something interesting and exciting to watch. And actually a new structure of that nature with new competition, new competitions might just do that. You know, for example, why don't we start the season with a charity shield, something of that nature? You know, the, the Challenge Cup winners against the Super League winners, whether that's Grand Final or League Leader Shield or, or, or whatever. And let's get something happening. So if you can do that sort of thing, then you might get a situation where broadcasters are fighting with each other um, to get access to your assets. So the sport has to do quite a bit. Um, and to create the, the market in which broadcasters are willing to, to go with us. So, yeah, there's no doubt that that viewing figures have been good. But what I think broadcasters want to be behind is something that's growing, something that's getting better, something where the excitement is building. That's what we've got to create. And that's so what we're trying to do by discussing these these sort of new structures for the competitions. The two things strike me with that. Uh, one is uh, we did have a charity shield in the 1980s. And the second thing is that we've got Frame in the Future, which has never been implemented, which is everything that you've just spoken about. Um, if you can get the clubs to agree to, uh, to implement the report that is already there telling you mm -hmm. internally how to run your club and externally how your club needs to look, you've actually got the template. And I think part of the frustration is that that was a great document that the game chose uh, not to move forward with. But just returning to your return on investment, um, do you see a conflict here between you saying you want to enshrine promotion and relegation, 
and the fact that return on investment can't always be about performance on the field in any given year that we've seen in the past that if if you come to this um, almost crossroads moment where you're you're almost deciding what division people are going to be in they're not going to spend on anything other than getting enough quality players on the field to get promotion Um, we've got now this part-time full-time gap between between teams is it now a time to start saying is one part of the sport, part-time is another part of the sport, like oil and water, they may not mix. There has to be a deal that they can go through, but actually we need to give the best we can to each part of that equation. Um, the good points, Phil, and, and I think our return on investment model tries to balance all of that and tries to take away that, that distinction between full-time and part-time. Look, the way the money is proposed to be distributed, it has been distributed this season, because I've got the, the figures in front of me. Um, I would say about 60% of the distribution, maybe more than that, I can't do my maths properly. Yeah, maybe about that, is, is based on a base distribution for all the clubs and on prize money, depending on league appearances. But there are other criteria which allow you to earn more or less, depending on how you perform against those criteria. Those uh, include um, financial sustainability. Um, they include what you're, how you're performing with bringing membership, viewers, data um, into the game. What are your attendances? Are you getting good crowds in and are they are these games looking good on the TV? Are you financially sustainable and running your club in a sustainable fashion? That doesn't mean are you making a profit? It means are you running it in a sustainable fashion? And from a governance perspective, do you have a good welfare system, player welfare system? Have you got strong safeguarding right the way throughout your game? Are you having... Uh, a a model of inclusivity and diversity that makes this welcoming at every level. So we are rewarding clubs, whatever level they're at, full-time or part-time, for achieving against those metrics. And that is a significant percentage. It's not all of it. It's not the majority, but it's a significant percentage of the distribution. So it allows clubs to outperform their league position in certain other areas and bring more money into the game. For us as a governing body, that aligns clubs to our objectives to grow the sport. And, you know, it's something I'm quite proud of because I've been around sport for a long time. I don't see other sports doing this, but we are using the funds that we distribute responsibly and in a way that allows us to meet our objectives of growing the game. So I I want to come back to growth in a minute, because, again, uh, that seems to be the key to everything. How do you define it? What what does the outside world look at um, as evidence of growth? But just on um, that return on investment model, just to to finally make a point on it. Let's say we do go to 20 clubs. Will that be decided solely on league position at the time the ruler is out and the season is over? Or will you include some of the clubs that return on investment is actually more um, of, a, of a, a commendable effort than some of the clubs on the field um, that perhaps have put all their resource into playing only. So I'll tell you what my aspiration is, Phil. Um, that is that return on investment should apply throughout the model at, at all levels. That's why I want us to see and that broadly this mix um where, the, of course, the largest percentage is on a flat fee and, the, and on the pitch, but there are still a significant percentage based on other metrics. That's what I want to achieve. I said that in my presentation when I was pitching to be appointed chairman. That remains my view. We have to negotiate that. That's one of the things that's on the table. But I would like to see it because I believe that our club should be all aligned as much as we can with growing the game. Uh, before Phil mentions growth, and <laughs> um, I, 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 you, you, you say uh, cynical commentariat, which I think is a great name for the podcast. We might have to adopt that one. <laughs> if there's anything that we're more cynical about than rugby league, it's politicians. We have a, a new culture secretary, uh, Mr. Johnson's just appointed Nadine Doris uh, in that role. Uh, will we be bombarding her with information about how great rugby league is as a sport and and for the wider communities, the work of foundations and whatever? And, and what is our general? Uh, 
appearance with uh, politicians at the moment. I know they, got, they all got very excited about the uh, academy decision when it wasn't in their favour, but on, on a day-to-day basis, are we, are we happy with the way politicians deal with us as a sport? I think we've got good relationships with government and with parliament. And I want to credit Ralph Rimmer for this. I think I think that Ralph has done a huge job uh, of building our relationship with government and that, that if it wasn't for Ralph, there would not have been the 30 odd million pounds of government loans that came into rugby league in order to see us through the pandemic. And I think that that work, very significant. I think we are well connected with government. I think this government understands the importance of rugby league to the north. They understand the significant role that rugby league plays within the northern economy. And of course, that's an important political objective for this particular government at the moment. I think the government itself is very invested in the success of the Rugby League World Cup. So whoever is the Secretary of State for DCMS uh, will be the front face for that. The Prime Minister himself has been um, very supportive, as has number 10 and the number 10 machine of what we've been trying to achieve with the Rugby League World Cup. And I think what what is evident to me when I talk to politicians, and I do a lot of that as well. I talk to a lot of MPs and ministers. I think they recognise the unique social impact that rugby league has. It's got a very significant social impact, the way that it appeals quite disproportionately to people at lower socioeconomic groups, lower levels of education, lower levels of employment. Um, And I think that they see that the um, the the role that rugby league can play is that it can be a force for good um, in helping to create community cohesion uh, and community growth, uh, particularly in these important northern uh, constituencies. So I think in terms of our relationship with government and parliament, we're in a good place now. We have to keep working. MPs change priorities change, ministers change, uh, and you have to continually keep working. I welcome the fact that members of parliament in rugby league constituencies also feel that they can speak to us directly when they don't like something that we do. We have a really good relationship with the all party uh, group uh, for rugby league chaired by Judith Cummins, uh, Bradford MP. Um, And uh, I speak to them regularly. They are never shy to share with me or anyone they speak to their opinions. And I welcome that. If you look at the number of um, parliamentary questions that are asked of Jacob Rees-Mogg about the Rugby League World Cup in uh, business questions, you will see that Northern MPs and Rugby League MPs quite enjoy getting Rugby League uh, onto the floor of the House of Commons. And they're encouraged in doing that by the Speaker himself. Um, you mentioned Bradford, and I'm, I'm going to cut him before Phil asks his question about growth. Um, are they an elephant in the room for the RFL with with Oddsall, with the you know the status of the pitch? Uh, they seem to be a great lightning rod to blame everything on. And you know we've said in the past there probably should have been an inquiry about what happened there over the years, especially with the Oddsall situation. How is that seen within the RFL at the moment? The, the, the status of the, the pitch is blamed on you. Everything that happens around the club is blamed on you, probably by us and, and certainly by people on social media. I'm happy when Bradford is discussed as much as any other club. Um, you know, we've spent a bit of time on it, particularly while I've been, while I've been on the board because of the issues with Odsall, because with the previous owner uh, wanting to move Bradford uh, out of Bradford to Dewsbury, we've actually ended up speaking rather more about Bradford than I would have liked. I mean, they're, they're an important club with a great history, but they're no more worthy of no more time around the board table than anybody else. Um, so, no, I, I, I think we deal with issues as, as they crop up. I mean, if we look at Odsall itself, we've been clear that... Um, the Rugby Football League as a governing body has no business being a stadium owner. We became a stadium owner because of the threat to Rugby League in Bradford. But I think if we were a, if we were to start again, we wouldn't be owning Odsall. I think it's right in the end that either Bradford the city or Bradford Bulls the club are the owners of Odsall. So until we get to that position, we are trying to steward our, steward 
the ownership of, of, of Odsal as effectively as we can. We've got a lease um, with, with the Bulls now. Um, and, uh, you know, we've created a situation where we can bring other revenue in and make the stadium a bit self-sustainable. In the medium to long term, I am hopeful that we can um, move Odsal into new ownership that will be able to continue to protect um, the great sport of rugby league in the great city of Bradford. So, yeah, I think over the years it's come to our board table a bit more than it should, but that I think is primarily because of some of the issues with the previous ownership and because of the stadium. The demographic in the sport has changed from when it was historically born. Um, it's not as easy to define northern industrial or working class anymore, um, but that has underpinned the game in terms of its commercial partners, where the players came from, the support base was based. Um, so growth is a really important aspect and and it interestingly none of us have used the word expansion which can be quite pejorative because it's almost like if you move somewhere something else is being disadvantaged or disenfranchised but what what does growth mean is it geography um is there growth still in the traditional areas um, so I when i talk about growth phil i'm talking about more i'm talking about more viewers more more data more digital more supporters more uh, participants. Um, I'm talking about England winning. I'm talking about more better growth and more teams within uh, the wheelchair and the women's game and physical disability and learning disability. When I talk about growth, I'm talking about more. I'm not looking at a map. And I think that what we are looking to do is to build from our heartlands, build with the clubs that we have and enable them to be better all the time. So whoever that is, whether it's Hunslet or Keatley Cougars or North Wales Crusaders, you know, or Coventry Bears, can everybody be better than they are now? Can they help us to achieve our objectives? Can they be better? That's really what I'm talking about. If you look at where the opportunities for real growth, more, um, more than we have, are, I think the women's game is a tremendous growth story already. Um, it, you know, the standard is getting better. The interest in it is getting higher. There are more and more clubs uh, playing. And I think there's more interest in the women's game. I think wheelchair rugby league is a hidden gem within our sport. It is a fantastic game. And we've got some great ambassadors playing it. And it's something, talk, the question that Richard asked earlier about politicians, I'm trying to get as many politicians as possible to wheelchair rugby league because it really shows the power of ability. And I think it's fantastic. I think what we're doing with physical disability and learning disability, these are really unique ways of bringing accessibility and inclusivity into uh, our sport. But other exploitable opportunities, particularly in the men's game, I think nines is an underexploited asset for the game. I don't think we do enough of it internationally and I don't think we do enough of it uh, domestically. And I'd like to be able uh, to see uh, that. As I've said earlier, I think the international game is significantly underexploited and underappreciated. And we're working with our um, partners overseas to see whether we can create that calendar that would allow us to do that. So I think what we're trying to do is almost square the impossible circle. With less money, we're trying to create a situation where we can grow the game and create more viewers, more spectators, more participants, more digital access, better success for the England teams, um, better run sport, more financial sustainability exciting competition. It's challenging. It's really challenging. And we may not succeed with everything that we're trying to do, but we are determined to give it the very best that we can. The one thing we've always struggled with, and this goes back 126 years, it's nothing to do with the current regime, is whatever new markets, expansion, growth means outside of the areas we are traditionally strong. So, we can talk about London and why after 40 years they're now going back to be part time when, you know, 
it's not that long ago that they were in a Challenge Cup final and that you know Richard Branson was involved and it was going to be yeah we're still producing great academy players but what is their route through to the top um, North America is something we should probably touch on as well on the the basis of the fact that I, I don't think on this program I, I don't know what you thought about it that the statement from Super League that North America wasn't an exploitable market when it clearly is one of the biggest sporting markets in the world at the same time you're trying to bring a team in in Ottawa we, we've seen um, that there was success with Toronto on the basis of the fact that a lot of what Hull KR are doing at the moment who are being held up as an exemplar of return on investment both on and off the field is based on that Toronto model of making that game day event more an experience um, how again your, your circle is now bigger because I'm including elements that that perhaps aren't part of the game at the moment what does a broadcaster want and what do you want from successfully exploiting new markets as we haven't done in the past um, I mean, that's a big question. You've, you, you've, you've hit on a lot of things. I'm trying to work out where best to, to, to go in on this. I mean, what's been fascinating this season, and I think it's the big story really on the pitch, is that the top two divisions will be have been won by French teams. Now, that is hugely significant. That is hugely significant. And I think that the, the performance of Catalan's Dragons and, and Toulouse has been really quite exceptional this season. Um, I, I don't want. To, we can go back over what happened with Toronto if you want, but I'm, I'm not going no, to no, focus I'm, on it. I'm not going to focus that's on an it. example that yeah. again, as a sport, we had an opportunity, and for yeah. whatever reason, that opportunity isn't it, there. It, really. it didn't happen. I think you asked a question about a broadcaster. A broadcaster will never tell us which markets to be in. It will no. never tell us what teams to have. It will say, make the competition that you have as enticing, as exciting as you possibly can. Give us the best possible athletes. Give us matches where the outcome is in doubt. Give us something to play for. Play it in good stadiums that are full of spectators. Play it with good facilities. Spectators will go into stadiums with great facilities, welcoming atmosphere, um, inclusive atmosphere, friendly atmosphere. That broadcasters like to see great action in full stadiums. They're not that bothered about where it is as long as you are at the heart of and showing the best of your game. So I'm convinced that that's where we should be. And I think this discussion about expansion and about um, new territories and new markets, we try and judge it against our criteria about more spectators, more, viewer, uh, more viewers, more participants, more data, England teams winning. Will those will the step that we're taking enable us to do those sorts of things? So we we could well have two French teams in Super League next season. That's going to be really interesting. And I don't know how it will go, but I'll be as interested as you to see how that does for Sky showing the Super League. Um, you know, because I think it's going to create a very interesting situation. Like Castleford's comeback last night, we are running out of time. So I just want to ask one <laughs> final question from my perspective, because uh, I know Phil will have something else. I think we've only mentioned him once uh, in this uh, hour almost, and that's Ralph Rimmer. He gets a lot of criticism on social media. We're a sport that talks about uh, mental health a lot. Um, how much do you support Ralph in his role and, and and what what does he bring to the, the job that people don't see that that do sit there and criticize him all the time we're not saying he's perfect in his role we're not saying that but just for people who don't see him on a, uh, in, a in a work situation well I, I explained earlier the superb work that Ralph did behind the scenes to secure keep this sport alive during the lockdown I mean you, you shouldn't underestimate the impact of that uh, Ralph is is a superb operator within the game. He has got the ability to get things done because he retains a high level of trust amongst the uh, owners and the coaches and those who run the clubs. And so he can get a lot done and get a lot of things agreed in a way that I think we would struggle otherwise. I work really closely with with Ralph on behalf of the board. We speak two or three times a week. We have uh, a fortnightly routine. Um, we're always trying to work out ways to help to get the whole performance of the whole of the of the uh, RFL better. So, you know, I see a lot of the criticism of Ralph, and I think a lot of it is unjustified, particularly those who say that he should be out there talking all the time. I, I You know, I ask people to have a look 
at how often they see the chief executive of the FA or the chief executive of the ECB or the chief executive of the LTA out there all the time. It's not what you. It's not really what you do. The the chief executive is the is the front person for the sport. And I think Ralph is very, very good at that. He leads a very good, strong team, building outstanding relationships with our commercial partners. He's right in the heart at the moment of of helping us to bring strategic partners to talk to the RFL. So, you know, I'm I'm very happy with the work that Ralph's doing. I work with him really closely. If I don't think that if I think that there's something constructive that he could do better, then I have that conversation directly with him. What I don't do is share it on social media. You mentioned strategic partnership, and I think that's probably the the area that we we probably should finish on. Um, what does that actually mean? What does it look like? Is it private equity? Ken Davies been on record saying not so keen on that as a route. Um, Adam Pearson saying actually I'm very keen. Can I have the check tomorrow? Um, if you get the strategic partner on board that you're looking for, and if it does involve some degree of finance, and I, I, I fully accept there's, there isn't one model and you'll be looking at more than one, they will want a say in the return on their investment. Now, if they come to you and say, clearly we would like rugby league to be higher profile in London, we would like to replicate what the Dragons have done in an area of France in Wales, or we'd like to see a, a team coming in Ireland and we think we have a, a potential strategic partner that can help us achieve that. Where will the say lie? Will you be able to still determine the route you want the sport to go and that you've outlined today? Or will the strategic partner have a bit be telling us that in five years time we will be having teams all over the world playing in rfl designated competitions look we, we don't know the form of the investment as you say don't know what what's going to come but my experience of investment is that people will want to make an investment and have the opportunity to make have a say in how that investment is used um they may want to take equity. So one of the things we're discussing at the moment in the creation of this joint venture is seeing whether that could be the vehicle that, a, that an investor could come and invest in jointly with RFL and SLE. There will be some investors who will want to protect what they want to achieve contractually. They might say, we're prepared to give you X, but you need to meet the following objectives. So it really all depends. But the aim will be to bring somebody who is willing to be a partner to us. I know some people would just say, please, can we just go into a deal with a bank and we'll just take their check? But, you know, that comes with some financial mm -hmm. strings that people might be uncomfortable with. By far the best way to do it, in my opinion, and I'm just one voice in this, but my opinion, it's shared by others, is that the best partner will be somebody who wishes to invest alongside us. And that's why we talk about them being strategic. They will come alongside Super League and the RFL. And together, jointly, we will think about exploiting the commercial assets of the game. That's where we're talking about. Can they help us to grow the commercial assets, increase the revenue that flows into the game? And can we distribute that revenue in a way that helps us to grow and meet our growth objectives? We appreciate your time, Simon. And I know we uh, have to wrap up now, but do you have a... Uh, a glib statement for the, uh, the listeners and viewers of this program who are very much of the critical nature about where rugby league is and, and, and where we're going and why, why we should keep supporting the game. Well, I think rugby league, I'm not going to be glib, I hope. I think rugby league is, is I think it's the best sport. I think the, it, it, the fans, people involved with it are so passionate about it and they're right to be so. It's a fantastic sport. It generates more comment and more care and concern than any sport I've been involved with. Um, and I think that people should continue to to love the sport, continue to have a voice. I'm happy to, uh, you know, talk from time to time about this. But what I, what I want people to realise is that we, the board of the RFL, have the very best interests of the sport at heart. We're an independent board with a range of different skills and experiences all being put at the disposal of the great game of rugby league. We are committed to doing as best we can. And I recognise, as I said at the beginning, some people will disagree with what we do. But I hope that by doing things like this, they can understand the basis on which we're making decisions, understand the factors that we are taking into account, and recognising that we are as committed as everybody else to growing the great game of rugby league. There you go.
wasn't glib at all, was it? I don't even know what the word means. I've just heard some yeah. music. Uh, Simon, thank you very much for your time uh, this morning. It is very much appreciated. And uh, the very best of luck for the future with all the, the future plans and, and growing the game and keeping us afloat. Well, thanks very much. And thanks for having me on. And uh, good luck. I look forward to staying in touch. Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.